Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at the time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce the moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress in the Treatment of Follicular Lymphoma. And today's program is supported by Epizyme, and I want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have um, a lot of you on the program today, and we have um, over 254 participants on the call um, on, on this call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have participants from Brazil, Canada, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So it's actually a bit of a global call as well. Um, now, before we actually start the formal program, um, we do have a few uh, questions we'd like to ask you. Um, and so um, those of you who are live streaming, I'm going to start with the first question. And the reason we ask you these questions is it helps us in planning future programs to know what you know coming into the program. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand treatment options for those newly diagnosed with follicular lymphoma. So again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The second question is, I understand treatment options for those diagnosed with relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating with five the lowest rating. And question number three, I know the importance of clinical trials for follicular lymphoma. Again, one the highest rating, five the lowest rating. And there's just two questions left. This is the next one. Four, I know how to manage treatment side effects for follicular lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand the guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us to have a better sense of, of, of what you know. And so now we're going, going to see what you can learn on this program today. We have wonderful speakers, just the best. And so I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. John Pagel. Dr. Pagel is Chief of Hematologic Malignancies Program, Director of Stem Cell Transplantation, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Pagel will be addressing an overview of follicular lymphoma in the context of COVID-19, treatment options for newly diagnosed, factors that may affect treatment planning, clinical trial updates, how research increases your treatment options, 
the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and tips to improve communication with your healthcare team. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pagel. Oh, thank you, Carolyn. Great to be with you and great to be with everyone. Certainly great to be with Dr. Martin, too. You'll hear from him uh, shortly. I'll do my best to leave the not step on him. You'll hear some really good stuff with him. Uh, and uh, I'll try to give you a, a, a good start here for the next uh, 15 minutes or so. You know, this is always a, a bit of a challenge when you consider, you know, the audience. You have uh, lots of people here, many of you who have perhaps been uh, on these calls in the past. You have a lot of experience uh, with these types of forums. You also have a lot of knowledge. And then there's, of course, people at the other end of the spectrum. They're new to this. They're perhaps just uh, come uh, with awareness of the disease or a family member, perhaps. And so I want to do a little bit of setting the stage for everybody. And let me just give a uh, uh, hopefully a relatively quick overview of folliculum foam and how, how you want to think about that. And of course, you know, just like you can have a cancer of any part of your body, breast, colon, lung, prostate, you can have a cancer of blood cells. You know, blood's an organ, it just happens to be in a liquid form. And, uh, you know, when we talk about cancer, we just mean that something went wrong in one of these cells. Something went wrong in this case in a blood cell we call a lymphocyte. And that just means that the cell's behaving in an abnormal way. Um, the cells are not doing what they should normally do. And normal lymphocytes, which are a type of white blood cell, have a job to do. Those normal cells really are important for keeping us happy and healthy. A lot of times, of course, they're fighting infections, as you know. Um, you know, when we get that sore throat and the infection in our throat, and that tonsillar lymph node kind of gets inflamed and enlarged, that's, uh, of course, those normal lymphocytes doing their job fighting that infection. And so they all have their job to do, and that's, again, to keep us happy and healthy. So these normal cells are actually born uh, you can think of them having a lifespan or a life cycle. They're born in the bone marrow. Uh, they like to uh, grow up for a bit, and then they leave the house like uh, most uh, adolescents do, except perhaps my own children, um, or they return back in my case. Um, these cells uh, start circulating in the blood. They're looking for a place to live. They like to live in lymphatic tissue, of course, as you know, and those are primarily lymph nodes. And so they'll hang out there until they do their job, perhaps it's to fight that infection like we just kind of mentioned, and then they uh, go on to uh, become grandparents and they die. And that's a normal process, but of course at any spot in that normal process something can go wrong and these cells can get arrested in their development, meaning that they start making too many of themselves, they make clones or exact replicas of themselves, and the cells don't die like they're supposed to, and so they build up over time. Fortunately, this happens in a very mature lymphocyte such that that behavior is what we call chronic or slow growing or in fact more descriptive indolent. It's something that may be around for years and years and people can do well with this for many years. And that's of course to recognize then that still in 2021 because of uh, despite all of our incredibly great therapeutic uh, advances and options that we have for patients, we don't treat anyone unless we have a reason to treat them. And that's because they're likely going to do well for long periods of time in most cases. And we aren't going to maybe 
have some therapy early on when patients are asymptomatic that will change the natural history of that disease. And so therefore we watch patients. And we look for those things that are really affecting uh, uh, a patient that will drive treatment. So their symptoms, perhaps their drenching sweats at night or really significant weight loss or perhaps a very enlarged spleen that makes it hard to eat. You get a, uh, an idea about all of that. And then that leads to a very important extensive discussion that a patient would have with their physician about the options for treatment. And the options are varied in many, and that's a really, really good thing for our patients. And a lot of it depends on what's right for one patient and recognizing that it might not be exactly right for the next patient. So we take a lot of factors into account when we're thinking about treatment. What, what are the goals of the patient in particular? What uh, is uh, really affecting that patient at that time? And what other things are going on with the patient? Does the patient have uh, a little, uh, any other medical issues that we want to think about, something we call comorbidities? You know, is there any underlying uh, issues with cardiac function or pulmonary function? All things that you want to think about and talk about with your physician and your providing team. And a lot of that will go into the treatment planning. The vast majority of patients, of course, get chemotherapy-based regimens in the front line for follicular lymphoma, but we have all kinds of new and exciting therapies that are really important, perhaps not only in the front line, but down the road if and when patients need them. And I think Dr. Martin's going to tell you a lot about some of these new and emerging treatments that are super exciting. But of course, the mainstay is the old ones are certainly around and aren't going to go away, and they're important to recognizes that the more options that we have for patients, the better it is, of course. And one of the options, of course, to think about, to remain certainly at the forefront of someone's mind when, we're think when they're thinking about therapeutic options, is understanding that clinical trials and research opportunities are very often an incredibly positive, important way to go or at least to consider as, as an approach. So I would always encourage patients to consider those approaches. Remember in oncology, certainly in this disease, follicular lymphoma, clinical trials are really designed to improve on the standard of care. Important questions being asked, maybe extending survival or maybe decreasing the adverse events or what we like to call the toxicities of a certain therapy. Lots of them have really, well, they all have super sound scientific and clinical rationale and are very important in the right settings to think about. So always ask your physician if you can about clinical trial opportunities and there's almost always an opportunity that might be right for you. And do remember that these drugs can be expensive and often these drugs can be supplied at a nominal cost or even for free as part of a clinical trial. The field though in follicular lymphoma over the last year and uh, the most um, uh, recent uh, history has really dramatically changed. And of course, you're going to hear a lot about the new agents here from Dr. Martin again in a minute, and particularly focusing on relapse refractory disease. But also know that the clinical approaches for patients are dramatically changing. Of course, now in the uh, last year, we've been doing many, many telehealth visits or what we call telemedicine visits. You've perhaps participated in these. These are certainly the ones with Zoom video conferences or even just telephone conferences. 
And they've been very important for a lot of follicular lymphoma patients to keep them, of course, away from a treatment center and for uh, the important reason of keeping them away from specific exposures. We recognize that uh, the limited amount of exposures in the right patients who don't need to be seen frequently might be very meaningful. Now, that's not everybody. There are some follicular lymphoma patients who we want to see in the clinic. We want to see co- uh, frequent, frequently. There are people getting therapy. There are perhaps people who have uh, specific need for monitoring blood counts, even in particular in the real time. But you can also understand that this is changing the landscape for us to suggest that in those people that are doing extremely well with follicular lymphoma, and fortunately the vast majority of patients do, we might be able to meet their needs and actually provide better care over the long term by keeping them away from the center by doing a telemedicine visit. Think about that. Ask your physician or your provider if that's an option. And even though it might be available, again, remember, it may not be the option for you, but important to know about, always to think about uh, nonetheless. When you do that, of course, you're going to understand that uh, there are different different approaches for every physician about how they handle these types of visits. They can be somewhat challenging. They're not what we're used to. So you have to be patient. I'd encourage you to really be patient with your physician sometimes or your treatment team. Remember, you know, you may have a telehealth visit that's scheduled for 10 a.m. for you, and the doctor doesn't join until 10.10 or 10.15 or something like that. And, of course, the reason is, is that physicians uh, have – Uh, a lot of moving parts in their schedule every day. And so be a little patient if you can. That's my suggestion. And physicians definitely appreciate that or providers do if you can. And and also then understand that time on the telehealth visit is often limited and it can go very fast. So have a bit of a outline for you about what you want to talk about and, and make sure that as best you can, you're recognizing that in the time constraints that you have priorities of what to talk about too, and maybe you can't get to everything on those telehealth visits. And what's appropriate for you also is to understand that things are really changing, of course, because of COVID. COVID COVID-19 has really affected um, not only telehealth visits and, of course, trying to keep people uh, without exposures, but it's really affected a lot of the ways that we approach and treat patients as well, and perhaps Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that, I suspect, even in the question and answer period. I've just given a very, very big overview, and I've tried to be very short and uh, succinct so that we'll have plenty of opportunity for time. But what I want to, again, lastly say and just reiterate is that this is um, not something anyone wants to have or a family member. We recognize that. There is no such thing as as a good opportunity to have cancer. But I will tell you, that the therapies that we have now just started to uncover, you'll hear about them here in the next handful of minutes. And then where we're going with the exciting research that's being done is going to have a major impact in the natural history of this disease for many patients. It's uh, for a researcher, a physician in lymphoma like Dr. Martin and myself, it's an exciting, important time. And I do honestly, truly believe that we're, not only helping patients today with better tolerated therapies and helping them uh, manage their disease, but we're really working towards the eradication of this disease, not just way down the road, but really in our our lifetime. 
Uh, and I, I'm excited about that, and I hope that you are too, and I hope that you'll have a lot of questions for us. Carolyn, um, tried to stay on time. I hope that was an okay overview, and I'll let uh, you take it back to Peter perhaps now. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pegel. That was really outstanding, a uh, wonderful overview and uh, just uh, a lot of wonderful information. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, is Dr. Peter Martin. And Dr. Martin is a Chief Lymphoma Program Associate Professor of Medicine while Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin will be addressing uh, treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, new and emerging treatments, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort, quality of life concerns, key questions to ask your healthcare team, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Dr. Martin. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner, and, and Dr. Pagel gave a great introduction to um, initial management of follicular lymphoma, and I think one of the nice things that he emphasized is that, uh, in general, we expect people with follicular lymphoma to live a very long time. In fact, most of them will live as, as long as uh, the rest of the population without follicular lymphoma, and that means that uh, people like Dr. Pagel and I get to know our, our patients for very long periods of time. And it means that we have to come up with a lot of different potential uh, management strategies over over years or or decades now as uh, as we typically expect. One of the first things that we think of when we meet somebody with follicular lymphoma that has come back after initial therapy is whether or not there may have been uh, something we call transformation. Transformation is a biological event that results in follicular lymphoma behaving a little bit more. Uh, more aggressively. In other words, it evolves and becomes something we call diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So we always look for that uh, first before proceeding with anything else. The next thing we think of in the event that transformation is not present is do we really need treatment at all? And Dr. Pagel touched on this uh, briefly in uh, initial management of follicular lymphoma. And in fact, the same thing is true in relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma. And lastly, when we're determining our treatment options, we want to keep in, in mind the goal of treatment. So the goal really of managing follicular lymphoma when it's come back is to minimize lymphoma-related symptoms while also minimize, minimizing treatment-related uh, side effects. And those decisions fundamentally are based on both lymphoma-related factors, which I uh, mentioned briefly, patient-related factors, as, as many different ways as lymphoma can present with 8 billion people on Earth were all a little bit different, and that's, that's important to keep in mind that lymphoma doesn't happen in a vacuum. We all bring our own history to the table. And then also critically, prior treatment experience. So for example, if somebody had a hard time with prior treatment, we wouldn't necessarily propose the same thing again. On the other hand, if somebody had a, a great response to a very simple treatment, then we might consider even repeating the same thing. So. There are now probably, uh, you know, over, over a dozen treatments. In addition to chemotherapy, there are a dozen non-chemotherapy-based treatments that are approved for follicular lymphoma, and probably over a half dozen of these were approved within the past five years. We are literally in a, a revolutionary time in the history of medicine. Uh, in, in fact, just two treatments have been approved already in 2021, so it's, it's almost impossible to keep up. 
with all of it uh, if you don't make it your full-time job, which Dr. Pagel and I do. Broadly speaking, you know, these treatments can be turned into, uh, can be classified in different classes. So we have traditional chemotherapy, and this can include even high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant. There are immunotherapies, which can include antibodies like rituximab. Uh, used to be that we used more commonly uh, immunotherapies that were bound to radiation, which we call radioimmunotherapies, so they're a little bit less common now. Then there's another kind of immunotherapy called CAR T-cells, or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, which use, interestingly, sort of some of the older antibody technology, but in a far more sophisticated way. And this was really just approved two weeks ago for management of follicular lymphoma, and this is particularly exciting. Lastly, we also have targeted uh, drugs. These are mostly enzyme inhibitors, and there are really uh, three different classes of uh, targeted drugs. We have PI3 kinase inhibitors. Um, there are four uh, currently approved PI3 kinase inhibitors. Uh, one of them, Umbrilisib, just approved uh, a month ago, I think. Uh, lenalidomide um, is another targeted drug with uh, multiple effects, in fact. And then approved in 2020, uh, the EZH2 inhibitor called Tazemetostat. So a lot of different uh, targeted drugs all of these different kinds of therapies have different pros and cons. And they may, they may be related to the mode of administration, intravenous versus oral. They may be related to the duration of therapy, which might be intermittent or continuous and indefinite. They might be related to some of the expected side effects. But always when we're making the decision about the kinds of treatments that we're selecting, the goal is to manage, uh, uh, maximize our ability to control lymphoma-related symptoms and minimize treatment-related side effects. And that's, I think, what I, I want to emphasize is critical. Managing the symptoms that sometimes come from lymphoma and the side effects that sometimes come from therapy is a really important part of our job as oncologists. We're not just... Uh, People who, who uh, push chemotherapy and give drugs really are our goal, you know, when you think about, about it, is trying to make sure that somebody has the maximum chance to live as normal a life as possible. And so we're, we're really uh, experts in managing some of the things that come along with lymphoma or treatment of lymphoma. I think one of those things that um, may be under-recognized is the emotional stress that comes along with lymphoma. Increasingly, I think we're recognizing that even people who are in that watch and wait period, not actively receiving treatment, can experience emotional distress and anxiety. And in a lot of ways, over the past year, we've seen during the pandemic, um, you know, mental health issues have emerged in a way that I, you know, I think may have been predictable, but were probably not uh, anticipated. And I think a lot of cancer centers um, and doctors have responded to that by growing our teams of professionals, uh, social workers, therapists, and psychiatrists and psychologists who are able to um, help people and uh, people dealing with lymphoma and caregivers to deal with some of these issues. I think the one thing I want to emphasize is if you are feeling any of those things, then you just need to talk to your doctor about it, ask about what sort of resources are available to you. Uh, there's no a shame or harm in talking about it and asking about it. In fact, I think the opposite is probably true. Not talking about it is not healthy. 
Um, lastly, you know, it, I think um, there were two other things that I wanted to talk about. What is one is what are the questions that we want to talk to our healthcare doc, uh, healthcare practitioners about? I think I I talked a lot about this, but I you know one of the um, challenges I think is that it's very hard to gather all of this information in one visit. And Dr. Pagel, I think, uh, touched on this as well with you know over a dozen potential treatment options available. Sometimes the best strategy is to ask about what options make the most sense, to go away, think about it, and then have a follow-up visit to go over those options again um, to make sure that all, all details are clarified before proceeding. And one of the nice things about follicular lymphoma is that it rarely presents as an absolute emergency, and we usually have a lot of time to think about the treatment and the implications. And so I would encourage people to do that. And and one of the nice things I think that may have emerged from the pandemic is this increased use of telemedicine. And uh, one um, potential use of telemedicine, I think, is in these follow-up visits where we just need to go over some clarifications for some sort of uh, treatment that we may have discussed during an earlier visit. Dr. Pagel talked a lot about the telemedicine. Uh, Dr. Mesner asked me if I could touch on the uh, platforms used in telemedicine. And, you know, one one thing I think that's clear, even at, at Cornell, we've had multiple different platforms. And in fact, I, I tend to try to have three different ones available to me at all times in case one isn't working. I think that the thing that you have to uh, keep in mind is that um, it's not always straightforward. And if it's not working, it's not always your fault either. Uh, try it out in advance. Find out which platform is going to be used. Uh, for example, it may be Zoom. It may be that you have to update your web browser, but try it out in advance. Make sure you can use it and sign in early. And then it's always helpful, I think, uh, as with all clinic visits, to have an extra set of ears around, not, not just for technology, but also because a lot of information takes place. And this, uh, it's, it's always helpful to have an extra person in the room when you're having those discussions. So I'll pass it back to uh, Dr. Mesner and, uh, and Dr. Fagel and I, I think, are, are happy to take any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was also extraordinary, actually, and wonderful, wonderful presentation and, um, and a lot of very good information. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about um, the supports that people need to cope with follicular lymphoma and then just the services of Cancer Care and another, other organizations as well. So I should say that Cancer Care is a national organization. Uh, we're accessible. Uh, many people have always contacted us at a Hope Line, it's an 800 number, or visit our website. And you'll be getting all that information. Um, you'll be getting an evaluation through SurveyMonkey at the end of the call, and you'll get all those, any any information we give to you that we think would be helpful to you to have, links or websites or anything like that, you'll get that um, at the end of the program. Um, so um, obviously people do need just practical um, and emotional support and social support to cope with follicular lymphoma. And there are many different um, venues to get that support, um, both uh, there's a practical and financial assistance, case management um, services, and also um, and uh, Cancer Care is one of the many organizations that offers support to people with follicular lymphoma. There's also Lymphoma Research Foundation and Leukemia Lymphoma Society as well. They also offer and, um, 
So there are a number of organizations that do offer support, and we'll be giving you that information at the end. In terms of what Kent's Care offers, we do offer a host of free services and programs. Um, our, our services are offered by oncology social workers, um, and so when you call our Hope Line, you'll be speaking to an oncology social worker. And the services we offer are support, online support groups, so a chance to be in a support group with other people online. Um, and we also have a case management program, so if we don't have the service, we will refer you or help you get to a place that has the services that you need. And we won't just give you a list of places to call, but we'll actually go with you, not physically, but virtually on the telephone, um, so that we connect you up to the places that you need the help from. Um, and um, we also have these type of workshops that we offer and, of course, a host of publications as well that we um, have, as do many other organizations. And on hospitals, too, there's a lot of information out there. Your healthcare team also provides information to you as well. So there is um, a, a lot of information out there available for you to get. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, we're going to do one more set of questions. And so um, for those of you, that really helps us to see um, what, your, um, uh, what you've uh, what I've learned from today's program. So I'm going to start with the next question, and there'll just be five of them. So if you can just bear with us. Um, so, and if, for those of you who are live streaming, if you could just respond to these questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of new and emerging treatment treatments for those newly diagnosed with follicular lymphoma. Again, one is the highest and five the lowest. The score. So you're scoring them, you're rating them actually. And the next question is. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in participating in the new and emerging treatment options for relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in clinical trials for the treatment of follicular lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And there's two questions left. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team to manage the treatment side effects of follicular lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating, five the lowest rating. And this will be the last, last question here. Um, as a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in the guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments for follicular lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in this um, in these questions. I really appreciate your information that you're providing us, so it helps us to better plan programs to meet your needs. And now we're going to have uh, all of our speakers on board. So I'm going to ask Michelle to bring on uh, Dr. Um, Pagel and Dr. Martin, and um, we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. So, um, Michelle, if you could explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Thank you. 
Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. For those of you on the web, may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, if you have a question on the phone line, please press star then one. We have a question from one of our online participants for Dr. Martin. Um, so, um, and this is a general, the person's asking for themselves, but if you could just comment on this question. Um, what do you think about the use of lenalidomide and um, lenitumumab in treating patients with relapsed, relapsed follicular lymphoma? Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, so the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab is um, approved by the FDA for treatment of uh, people with follicular lymphoma that has come back after prior therapy. There was interestingly a clinical trial in the frontline setting that I won't uh, touch on, but it, it is approved by the FDA in the relapsed refractory setting. And it has indeed shown a very promising activity in particular when it was compared to just rituximab by itself. So it resulted in uh, deeper and more durable responses. We've, um, I think most of us in academic medicine have been using lenalidomide and rituximab for uh, uh, several years now, even before it was actually approved by the FDA. You know, one, one thing to keep in mind is that just because it's not chemotherapy, it doesn't mean that it has no side effects. Um, it does indeed have some side effects, including potential risk for infections, uh, sometimes rash, uh, fatigue, and diarrhea. Often those are, are manageable, and one of the nice things about lenalidomide is that the dose can be adjusted uh, pretty easily because it's a pill that comes in different tablet sizes. So it definitely has a role, uh, and indeed um, uh, was approved by the FDA because of its activity. Awesome. Thank you. Um... And a question for Dr. Um, Pagel. Um, can follicular lymphoma transform into other types of lymphomas? Well, yeah, great question. Very important question. And uh, I think uh, Dr. Martin kind of touched on that briefly, but do know that that is something that can happen, albeit it's very important to understand that that's very uncommon. Um, we don't see it often. Most patients will never have that happen. And we can't even predict uh, who that's going to happen in. Uh, so we, you know, watch people and do our best to stay on top of things. But it's important, I believe, to really understand that that's an uncommon event. It's also really important to understand that when we see what we like to call transformation, meaning you're going from, let's say here, follicular lymphoma to a more aggressive lymphoma like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And that that large B-cell lymphoma is, again, recognized as a more aggressive lymphoma, but it's also one that we are very effective in treating and often can actually eradicate and keep from ever coming back. In other words, even cure maybe still go on with the follicular lymphoma and maybe there's no more transformation after that and people can do well. But we do recognize that it can happen. We watch for it and we deal with it appropriately when it comes along. And in the vast, vast majority of cases, again, it's uncommon, but when it does happen, we're highly successful in treating it. 
Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for um, for Dr. Martin. Um, so a question about COVID-19 vaccines. Why should I get this vaccine with very little chance of it giving me any protection? If you could comment on this. Uh, yeah, this is a great question. It's one that has been discussed um, probably more than people may on the call may recognize. Uh, literally hundreds of uh, oncologists and uh, industry and uh, infectious disease specialists and virologists have gotten together in meetings to discuss this very issue. It's something that's being actively researched right now. I think probably the best thing we can do is to say that there are going to be some people who don't benefit from a vaccine as well as other people do. We have some ideas about who may be less likely to benefit, but we don't know for sure. And even amongst people who may be, you know, as a population less likely to benefit, there may be individuals who could benefit. The other, the other uh, thing that I think is relevant is you know, benefit sounds like an either or sort of a a word, but in fact, it's probably relative. So even a small amount of benefit from a vaccine may be enough to turn what would be otherwise a serious illness into a, a moderate or mild illness. So it's something that the world is, is researching, um, but we don't have an answer to. I think it is worthwhile pointing out that as far as we know, and I think we're pretty confident in this, the vaccine is very unlikely to be harmful. It's not going to be harmful just because your immune system isn't the same as it used to be. It may not as be as beneficial as it as it might have been in the past. So nothing really to lose, um, and more information in the future regarding uh, how much we have to gain from it. Thank you. That's excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope that that's helpful to our to this caller and, and to many of you who may have these questions as well. Um, and for Dr. Pagel, um, my doctor said that follicular lymphoma is an indolent lymphoma. Is it possible for it to grow quickly? Yeah, you know, let me just kind of put, make sure that we're all familiar with the term indolent. You know, when we talk about non-Hodgkin lymphomas, which is where follicular lymphoma lives, there are two real subtypes, as we've kind of discussed, or either what we call aggressive lymphomas or indolent lymphomas, and really indolent means that they're slow-growing, uh, at least relatively speaking. And um, the, the indolent lymphomas, uh, for the vast majority of patients, behave just like that. You know, there's a bell-shaped curve of how these people do. There are people who are at the very, very far end of the curve, way out on the tail, who, you know, I'm sure... Peter has these kinds of patients as well. I have people that I've had in my clinic for more than 20 years. I actually have some that have been more than 20 years without ever even getting treatment. I've had some that have got treatment 20 years ago and never relapse. You know, that's not the most common uh, description. That's way out, again, on the tail of the bell-shaped curve. Um, but it can happen. Most people are in the middle. There's the other end of the bell-shaped curve where people can be told that they have follicular lymphoma, it's an indolent disease, but it can, in very rare cases, perhaps biologically behave in a more aggressive way, relatively speaking, again, a more aggressive way. 
Um, and we recognize that. We certainly also know that those people are also very uncommon. Those are the ones who present with significant symptoms. They may have very widespread uh, enlargement of lymph nodes or a, a significant burden of their disease and may require therapy relatively quickly. But what's most important to understand is that most people are in the middle of this bell-shaped curve, and they do extremely well for long periods of time. Dr. Martin mentioned it. Most people live full, normal lives just like someone who's exactly what we would call an age match control, someone like an identical twin but doesn't have the disease. You live the same amount of time in almost in the vast majority of cases. So everybody's in the middle of this bell-shaped curve, and people will need treatment almost always. Not everybody, as I said, but most people need treatment. And most people need treatment more than once. And this kind of getting therapy and disease kind of getting under control and staying away for some prolonged period of time, and that can be years. And then the disease comes back at some point, perhaps. And, you know, you've heard that we have really a lot of good therapies, and you might get treated again, things go away. And not only are the therapies really good at controlling disease, but they're good at really the tolerability of the treatment. You know, there's a, a new drug, as an example, just recently approved a few months ago called Tazmetostat. And that drug is an oral pill that people take after multiple relapses or even relatively, uh, even perhaps in some cases earlier in their treatment encounters super well tolerated, people can do well with it and control disease, and they stay in the middle of that bell-shaped curve until they're 85 or 90 years old and do, do well and live life to the fullest, hopefully with outstanding quality of life and enjoying grandchildren, playing golf, and doing all the things that I hope to do someday. No, it's a very, very nice and very wonderfully inspiring answer. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Pagel. Um, and um, a question for Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Martin. Um, why is it not advised to begin treatment early before transformation? Why does this not improve outcome? This is a, a, a very interesting question. Um, you know, I'll rephrase it a little bit in that it's, it's not necessarily that it's not advised rather than it is that it's not necessarily uh, beneficial, right? So I mentioned that the, and, and Dr. Pagel just uh, discussed it at, at length, most people with follicular lymphoma are going to live full normal lives. And it turns out that whether we initiate therapy early or we wait for a little while to see how the lymphoma is behaving, Either way, those are those are unlikely to impact longevity, and so in that sense, starting treatment early on does not necessarily benefit people uh, at the back end. You know, uh, decades later, by making them uh, live a longer period of time. That said, some some people with very small amounts of follicular lymphoma are uncomfortable with the idea of uh, what we call watch and wait, and some people call it watch and worry. And I think that's that's legitimate. We've, we've recently completed a study at Cornell, and it's consistent with other studies showing, again, that some people with this watch and wait period can experience significant levels of anxiety. And, and sometimes starting treatment early can shrink the lymphoma and help people feel like they're 
they're doing something and they are the lymphoma is shrinking and it will be hopefully a long period of time before they need to be treated again in the future so i you know i think i think a, a nice thing is there are many paths up the mountain and that's definitely the case with follicular lymphoma there's no single strategy that's most acceptable for everybody i think the idea is to look at everything that's in front of us and make the decision that makes the most sense the other the other thing is you know that may change over time as new drugs become available it may suddenly you may suddenly learn that starting treatment earlier makes more sense but based on the historically available drugs primarily chemotherapy and rituximab we found no uh, significant benefit but i'm i'm optimistic that we'll, we'll you know there will come a day when we can hopefully in the not too distant future at the way things are uh, accelerating where, where we can start treatment early and, and maybe eradicate it in some people. So stay tuned. Excellent. Thank you. Wonderful answer and just wonderful metaphor of um, um, the mountain. That's, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and another question. Um, this is for Dr. Pagel. How common is follicular lymphoma in the colon? What is the usual treatment and what is time frame for recurrence? Well, that's an interesting question uh, that unfortunately we don't really know the answer to. Um, but, you know, what I would say is, uh, yeah, you really want to recognize that follicular lymphoma is what we like to call it, what we do call a systemic disease. It's not localized typically to one area. In fact, it really never is. Uh, or if it is, it's exceedingly unusual and rare. So it's very common to have lymphatic tissue or lymph nodes involved in multiple locations. And we, and in fact, by the way, that's obviously one of the reasons that we don't, you know, just cut it out, right? People will often want to know why we don't just take the lymph node out. Well, <clears throat> it's because these cells are in lots of places that we can't even measure. And that includes the colon. You know, most follicular lymphoma patients uh, could, I shouldn't say most, but many could have involvement of their colon because we, we have lymphatic tissue throughout what we call the mucosa or the lining of the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract or the, or the colon. So I don't know of any data, perhaps Dr. Martin does, but if you did, you know, just random biopsies in patients with follicular lymphoma and found it... Uh, there, I think that would be a relatively common story. And I don't think that in general we would say that it's going to behave more aggressively or behave in any unusual fashion just because it's localized or found in uh, colonic tissue. I wouldn't approach it perhaps any different than I would approach most patients with follicular lymphoma with similar genetic risk features. Um, everybody's a little different, but in general, that's not something that will uh, or should impact quality of life or often even drive treatment, wouldn't drive treatment without significant symptoms involving the GI tract. It's a really interesting, good question. I hope that that's somewhat of a satisfying answer without data. Thank you so much. These are really interesting questions we're getting. Um, and the next question is for Dr. These are really great questions. So thank you so much for, for the participants, and thank you for our wonderful speakers in addressing your questions. Um, 
So for Dr. Martin, um, why is there a disagreement of having two years of additional therapy after the initial six months of treatment with rituximab and bendamustine? Hmm. Okay, so, yeah, this, I would not say controversy is or disagreement is the, is the right uh, term, but there are, um, again, uh, multiple paths up the mountain, and uh, it, it's probably accurate to say that different clinicians may have different preferences of how they approach it. So the question really is, in people who receive chemotherapy plus an immunotherapy called rituximab or an immunotherapy called obinutuzumab, there are clinical trials that suggest that ongoing therapy for two years, not with the chemotherapy, but with the immunotherapy, so that's uh, an infusion once every two months, can prolong the time to the next treatment. So, uh, in fact, it reduces the uh, risk of requiring an, another treatment by about half at any given point in time. doesn't eliminate it, but it reduces the probability of requiring a treatment uh, at any given point in time. It does not impact longevity. So it depends a little bit on perspective and what the goal is, right? Uh, additionally, those, those immunotherapy maintenance strategies come with some side effects. They can be associated, obviously, with the hassle of visiting the doctor every two months. It can be associated with um, immunocompromise and infection risk. I think um, maybe now more relevantly, it may be associated with reduced response to uh, some vaccines. So it's not a, a strategy that has zero drawbacks, um, but it does have some advantages. And so I think um, people with lymphoma in conjunction with their um, physician should be weighing those options and, and deciding whether it's the right strategy or not. And, and it's also a strategy where you can sort of change your mind, too. If, if you start with it and you find that you're getting some infections, you can always stop it. Uh, so it's, you're never locked into it per se. But uh, rituximab does hang around in the body for about six months. So even when we stop it, it may still take a while for the immune system to recover. And that might be one reason why people might be a little bit more tentative to initiate it. But it's definitely a reasonable option, and, and many people feel that it should be used uh, in the majority of cases. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, the kind of different paths up the mountain is one interesting uh, perspective for people to have in mind as you listen to the program, as you talk to your physician, what is the path for you to take? So that's really um, what we're hearing um, here. Um, and for Dr. Um, for Dr. Pagel, if I am interested in joining a clinical trial, should I consider a follicular lymphoma trial or an indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma clinical trial? Also a good question. Um, you know, what I would say is it could really be either, and they're really one and the same uh, for the most part. Really, any trial that would be open to indolent non-Hodgkin lymphomas will include follicular lymphoma, being that follicular lymphoma is the most common of the indolent lymphomas, but it might include what we call other histologies, meaning other indolent lymphomas like marginal zone lymphomas. Sometimes they're 
called small lymphocytic lymphoma, maybe called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. All of those are considered indolent lymphomas, uh, and they're often treated in a very similar way. So it might include, again, a lot of those lymphomas. Or in some cases, it may be specific for the diagnosis of follicular lymphoma. Remember, there are, well, every time I check, it seems different, but there's well over 60 different subtypes of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So uh, do know that uh, you might see these kind of coordinated trials with multiple types of indolent lymphomas included, and they're very reasonable and important to consider. Remember that clinical trials are something that you should explore with your doctor. I said that earlier on, and I say it again. I think that there's tremendous benefit to you individually if there's a trial that's right for you. And maybe there isn't, but it's important to ask the question and explore it if and when you do need treatment. And uh, every trial is a little bit different, so you're going to weigh the pluses and minuses. And the pluses and minuses could have questions and understanding around the number of visits that it takes to come to the clinic. It could have questions around use of an intravenous agent versus an oral agent or combinations of agents. And, of course, assessing what the potential perceived toxicity might be. But do know, at the end of the day, the trials inherently are good. They're very well balanced. They're based on sound scientific rationale. They're not comparing a therapy in a randomized fashion ever to some kind of therapy that wouldn't be potentially beneficial to a patient. That would be unethical, wouldn't be something that could be done. So there's lots of opportunities and do know that you need to sometimes be proactive, your own best advocate to find those trials. You can find them on the internet, but again, talk to your doctor. What might be on the internet for a trial may not be the right trial for you for a variety of reasons, and that's why you need to do uh, some exploration, but also do it in a fashion where you're getting good, sound advice from someone you trust and have mutual respect with. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. That's excellent. Um, and a question for, um, for Dr. Martin. Um, after remission, what happens when it comes to follow-up care? This is also an interesting uh, question. You know, I mentioned that our goal is to help people live their life as close to normal as possible, and then, then we insert ourselves into that equation with sometimes with uh, blood tests or visits or scans and and sometimes those can be, um, you know, helpful, and sometimes they can provoke anxiety and cause a lot of hassle. I think that uh, there's probably a bit of a balance in there. I, you know, one thing that I will say is, you know, there is a role for ongoing doctor's visits. Uh, it's important to maintain that sort of connection so that we know and recall what that baseline was so that if you say there's been a change, we we remember what it was and occasionally we'll find something uh, show up. But most of the time, honestly, um, if the lymphoma comes back, it's actually the person with lymphoma who calls me and tells me that they've noticed something new. And the one thing that I think is really important about that is that they feel comfortable calling us and telling us. Again, actually, most of the time they call us and tell us something's new. It's not, it's not lymphoma. It's the rest of life that's, 
the past, you know, well enough their bike and have a sore knee two weeks ago and it's still sore now and they're wondering if it could be lymphoma or something like that. But it's my job to be the the arbiter of what what might be lymphoma and what what might not be and to come up with strategies to deal with it. So I think communication probably is the key uh, point that I'd like to emphasize. Uh, communication, not just during those doctor's visits, but between those doctor's visits if you have any concerns so that we can help address them. Excellent. And this will be our last question um, uh, for Dr. Pagel. Um, does research show which diet and lifestyle changes are most effective in good outcomes? Well, it's, uh, it's probably the most interesting question that uh, we can ask. And frankly, it's a question that gets asked of us all the time. I might even let Dr. Martin give a word on his thoughts about it because my thoughts are probably inadequate. And it's because we just really don't have data. We don't have data that says that for the most part, anything that we do is going to change how this disease behaves for each individual patient. It's about, unfortunately, in some ways, biology. Biology is going to do its thing whether we eat well or don't eat well. I think it makes sense, right? The more that we can do that's healthy, a healthy lifestyle is likely going to translate to improvements in disease control and management for patients. But again, the sad thing is we don't have data around that. So for me, I tell my patients, you know, use good common sense and moderation. So eat well-balanced meals. Certainly uh, don't use tobacco or smoking. Uh, if you can help it, uh, avoid excessive amounts of alcohol, moderation. You know, I even say wear a seatbelt in the car and use a bike helmet. Uh, it's all about good common sense and taking good care of our bodies and part of that as well is stress reduction. I'm a believer in that. I do believe that it impacts our overall health. I can't tell you exactly how because the data is very hard to analyze and to show true cause and effect about what we do every day and how it impacts our disease. But I would just suggest that if it, if it makes sense and is good and rational, then it's worth doing. If it's kind of crazy, meaning some diet or uh, you have to go uh, to a foreign country to get it or it's going to cause you an astronomical amount of money to get it or any of those things, it's probably not all what it's cracked up to be because if it was, your doctor would be telling you to do it. So, you know, good common sense, be careful, use moderation, eat well, stay active, and I should say exercise too. It's probably about the best answer I can give, and I'm sorry it's also a bit unsatisfying. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to add to that, Dr. Martin? Or? Oh, I think Dr. Pagel did a great job answering yeah. it. I did. Yes, absolutely. So now that, we're going to ask you. Because I, I, was, <laughs> I was worried that I was worried that Dr. Martin knew something I didn't know. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I have to say, um, you've been extraordinary speakers. And, I, and as to, we conclude, I, um, I wondered if you would each just give a takeaway. Um, what you'd like people to remember um, is important. Um, although we covered lots of different things today, um, so I'll start with Dr. Pago. If you have a takeaway you'd like people to remember, um, particularly. Well, my takeaway is, you know, being on uh, this side of the of the of the treatment room. Meaning, I, I've 
never had a malignancy, and I have to be fair. I don't know what it must feel like to have that. I can imagine, but I've never been there, and I probably will perhaps someday, and I'll understand it. But now all I can do is to say, hey, I have a lot of experience with this. Dr. Martin has a lot of experience with this. Uh, most people with follicular lymphoma will do very well. No one wants this. Recognize that. But I tell my patients, hey, if I'm worried about you, I'm going to tell you. And if I'm not worried about you, I'd encourage you to do your best to really live life, do your normal things, and not worry about it so much, except perhaps on the day you come to see uh, one of us who is your lymphoma-related doctor. And do know that we have all kinds of really great therapies out there for you. Um, I mentioned one as an example, an oral agent known as Tazmetostat, super well-tolerated. We'll see what happens with that drug in future trials and how it'll look, but lots of options, opportunities, and you heard from Dr. Martin as well. We have now cellular therapy, something called CAR T-cell treatment that we really didn't mention too much, but to say that's an option for people that may be a real, real game changer. So lots of positives, and I'm hoping that you've gotten that message from us here today. Thank you very much, Dr. Pagel and Dr. Martin. Um, you know, my, my take-home would be uh, communication. Um, this is something, you know, obviously I think all of us could do it better, myself included. But uh, I think I'm lucky enough to work with a bunch of exceptional individuals, not just the the doctors and PAs and nurses and secretaries and all of the staff I work with at Cornell, but the entire lymphoma community, almost almost down to the single, every single last one, has has just been uh, really nice to work with my whole career. And uh, I I do believe that almost no matter where you are in the United States, there's a uh, a lymphoma team that is highly qualified that you can pose your questions to and get a a very good set of answers back. And then once you've made those connections, uh, keep them going and, and don't be afraid to reach out. Excellent. Thank you. I, I want to thank again uh, uh, Dr. Pegwin, Dr. Martin, um, for the, their extraordinary presentations and just for their responsiveness to your questions. And I want to ask, I want to thank all of you who have asked such extraordinary questions and just wonderful questions today, I have to say. Uh, this has um, definitely been an, a remarkable program. And I know that there are many of you still in queue with questions, and I know some of you did get to ask your questions as well. So for those of you who had the opportunity to ask a question or for those of you who are still have a question to ask, please um, go back to your treating healthcare team and take the information you learned today and have them, you know, relate that to you and in, in, in your specific situation. That's really important. Um, and we hope that you have learned some information today that will be useful to you as you communicate with your healthcare team. Also, um, you will be getting information about all the resources that you can access just for support, um, both practical, financial support, um, future programming, not just from Cancer Care, but there are other organizations as well who offer just wonderful programs and services for you as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.